Camp, we, we have a schedule, but we don't go by the schedule. Is that all right? We just have it there so we'll know how far off we are. Amen. And uh, some days we get further off than other days. But that does not mean the next man that comes to this pulpit is limited. I tell you, in the Holy Ghost, if God is anointing him and he wants to keep us here two hours, we'll have choir practice after that. And then after choir practice, we'll have our children's church with the Jernigans and the... uh, Andy, are you still using Andy and Stanley? All right. And and if you run over on the dinner hour, then we'll just eat later. And if, if we eat later and we have to start church later, we'll do that. We, we're just wanting God to speak to us. I know yesterday that it was the will of God for our Bible teacher to take more than the one hour that had been allotted to him. And so we're just throwing the schedule away. It's the last day anyway. Forget the schedule. Can you do that? Could you just forget the schedule today? We're bringing to our pulpit Brother Grant, a man that uh, is so mightily used of of God in, in making the Word of God so simple to understand. There is a difference in preaching and teaching. Teaching is taking the Word of God and making it bite-sized and handing it to you until you're filled and you have left over. Every day, as Brother Grant has taught the good Word of the Lord, I've been able to receive. God has really spoken to my heart. And then, that message yesterday, on forgiveness. Again, I say, you want that tape. Be sure you you pick up that tape. If you don't buy any other tape in this uh, meeting, get the one on forgiveness. That's outstanding. Brother Grant, when he speaks to us, you'll you'll sense that. He's a very humble man. You can feel that in the spirit. He's a man directed of the Holy Ghost, and. He has given us what we need in this camp this year. Comes to us from Madison, Wisconsin. God bless you, Brother Grant. You just forget the schedule today. Would you do that? You do that. And thank you, Brother Connor, and praise the Lord. Again, everyone, praise God. Praise God. And you may be seated. I... uh, was really blessed by Brother Wilma's message. And there is a there's a real lingering spirit here. I feel that this is conducive to uh, the particular subject that the Lord has laid on my heart. I want to say that I do appreciate Brother Connor, your superintendent. He has been so very kind to us. We have... Uh, had no needs at all here that have not been met. I just appreciate uh, Brother Connor so very much. And, uh, and of course, the district board. I have uh, enjoyed working with uh, you. And this is my first time to work with Brother Travis in a camp meeting. And his message last night, I really needed that. 
I really didn't need that because I had a little area uh, in my life, a little health situation that I've been praying about and trusting God. And I just need to hear what he had to say. And I, I work with Brother Travis on the general board and in some, some committee meetings. And, but I've enjoyed this camp meeting more than those general board meetings, Brother Travis. <laughs> That's not to say that I don't enjoy working on the general board, but there's just something about when you really get down to spiritual things that that uh, you enjoy. And that's not to say that we don't do spiritual things on the general board, but there's a lot of things, a lot of things on that board that, uh, uh, well, they're boring. Um. <laughs> uh, I want to make myself very plain in this message this morning. Uh, I have been around a good number of individuals in my ministry that have been very negative and critical toward the United Pentecostal Church. Every now and then you'll you'll hear a minister and you feel that he has some things that he wants to get off of his his chest, so to speak. You don't feel it's a real burden from his heart as much as just something he wants to kind of get off of his chest. He wants to... I trust that you will not detect any independent spirit in me. I love the United Pentecostal Church. I love it dearly. I just believe that we're living in the last days and we have to be extremely careful about our walk with God I am hearing so many positive things in the area of revival all over. I've been in several districts. I have been encouraged. I did not know what to expect when I came to Arizona. And quite frankly, I didn't do any guessing or anticipating. I just came here with an open mind to the, to the Lord to teach what God had put on my heart. And I am... I am very, very, very encouraged and impressed with the Arizona district. And uh, the beautiful, beautiful country here. This is just a great place to have a camp meeting. Beautiful mountains and it's just, just great. I want to talk to you this morning on the subject revival heals. I, I want to emphasize the word heals. I, I do feel that there are certain things about revival that is not necessarily in the line of the healing process. There are certain spirits that have to be cast out, have to be driven away. There are certain destructive forces that take place during revival. But for the most part, true revival is like a fresh drink of water. It revives us. It actually heals us. Now, I'm going to be reading a good number of scriptures. Now, I'll even have you to stand this morning. We always stand to the reading of the Word. But because I only choose one scripture to start with, and we'll be going from scripture to scripture, I think it'd be all right that you just be seated. But turn with me to Psalms 85, uh, verse 6. And just take a look at the scripture that is found here about revival. 
Psalm 85, 6, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Israel over and over and over and over experienced great times of victory, and Israel went right back into those times of spiritual poverty. The book of Judges covers about 405 years, and there is a definite pattern found in the book of Judges. The book of Judges, you will find that God's people repented, God restored them, they sinned and God judged them. And they seem to never learn how to rise to the crest and stay there. This is not only true of Israel, I think this has been true of, of many, many movements where revival has come. This could also be true of us as the United Pentecostal Church. And this is the reason why that I feel in my heart just to stand here and minister to you and talk with you and reason with you this morning about something that I feel is extremely important for us to, to get into. As I said, I believe that revival heals. The word revival means to revive or to live again. Uh, in our part of the country, we've had a, just a terrible drought. It has been bad. We, we went, uh, I think, 38 days without a drop of rain. Wisconsin is always nice and green. We have some former Wisconsinites here on the front. I pastored both of these precious people, Sister Elaine Moe and Brother Dave Murray. Uh, they know what Wisconsin's like in the summertime. It's just nice and green. It's not that way in the wintertime. But uh, we went a long time without, without uh, water. Our campground, we were right in the middle of the drought during our camp meeting. And out in front of our old tabernacle that we converted into a Sunday school uh, room, that is where we could have a, a children's church and such, and we put administrative offices in it, uh, the grass out there uh, first turned brown. And then the grass just withered right down, and people walked over it, and you look out, and there's hardly any grass at all. We had uh, also a miraculous time at our camp meeting. We stood and prayed for rain. Would you believe that we prayed for rain, and ten minutes later it started raining? It was just, it was just great. All of a sudden it just started pouring down. Well, <clears throat> the very next week after camp, I had company from Texas and was not able to go back up to the campground. Then the week afterwards, I went up and I was amazed. Out in front of the tabernacle where there wasn't even any grass anymore. Evidently, those roots were still in there and they were alive. They had a little life in them. Would you believe that all of that had come back up and had turned green? I thought there wasn't any hope. But it was there. And I, Brother Showalter, our caretaker, I said, Brother Showalter, I can't believe. Look at the grass out there. He said, Brother Grant, I thought we'd have to plow that up and reseed it. Not so. The rains came 
And all of a sudden, there came the revival to live again. Now, as I said before, I believe that revival does heal. In Malachi, the fourth chapter, the very last verse that's found in the Old Testament, God was not going to speak to Israel for 400 years. There would be a 400-year period of time in which the prophets would not prophesy, in which there would be silence from heaven. But Elijah ends, I say Elijah, there is a prophecy concerning Elijah, which was John the Baptist that was to come. And Malachi ends the prophecy of the Old Testament by saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. In other words, there would be the healing of the families. There is a force in our world today to destroy the family. There is no doubt about it. The humanistic movement, the New Age movement, all of this is set out to destroy the family. And God says that he would turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. He said, now if this does not happen, the earth definitely will be smitten with a curse. And I, I particularly like what Brother Wilma, Wilma said when he was talking about people coming to the Lord. There are people that do feel that uh, it is their God-called obligation uh, to straighten people out and to run people off. There are some people that just have that calling. Some people do not have the the uh, spirit of, or they do not have the gift of discerning of spirits. They just have a fault-finding spirit. They just they just seem to pick up on every little negative thing. I do not believe that there's a man that walks on the face of the earth that you cannot find some negative things about that person. Uh, many of those things, it's just a matter of choice. Some people just do certain things because they want to do certain things. Maybe you might not like it, but for the most part, it's really none of your business. See? But uh, when true revival comes, it, it does not split, it doesn't tear up, it heals. And that's what uh, uh, Malachi was saying. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to uh, Matthew, the 10th chapter. And I want to look at verse 16. Matthew 10, uh, Jesus instructs the 12 and sends them forth. It appears that he uh, sends them out with the approximate power that they would receive on the day of Pentecost. And he enables them just like, uh, in other words, uh, there's a situation that occurs here that we could compare to the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was transfigurated uh, to, to prove a particular lesson uh, to the disciples. And here he sends them out, he gives them power over unclean spirits, that they could, could cast them out. They were to heal all manner of sicknesses and all manner of diseases and such. And uh, then he concludes his remarks by saying that some people will not accept you 
and he said, when you leave their house, he said, you should uh, shake the dust off of your feet. Now, to a lot of people, that simply means that you pronounce a curse on them. That's not what Jesus was saying. Basically, what he's saying is that you just have to forget about some things that don't work out too good. And you have to walk away from them. And uh, you should never consider yourself defeated. But at the same time, you should never be nasty to people because they did not accept your message. And so he gives us the attitude of the New Testament Christian. Verse 16, he said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So there are two words that we need to learn in this last day uh, revival that we are beginning to experience. Number one, the word wise. We need to be wise. Number two is harmless. Let's say those together. Wise and harmless. Wise and harmless. Wise and harmless. And every time that you feel the Spirit of God come upon you, Every time you dance in the Spirit, every time you go teach a home Bible study, every time you feel the influence of the Holy Ghost, if you feel something inside of you that begins to well up, such as some arrogant spirit or such, remember, wise and harmless, wise and harmless. An arrogant spirit is not a wise spirit. You've got to understand, my friend, there are no humble devils. There are no humble devils. And uh, uh, to be humble and to be meek diametrically opposes the spirit uh, of uh, the demon world. It diametrically opposes the spirit of the demon world. So we are to be wise and we are to be harmless. Now... What I want to say here for the next few moments, I do not want you to misunderstand me. I want you to understand that, that I have prayed much about this. I feel that my spirit is right. I trust that you will take it, that it is right. You see, we as a Pentecostal movement, we had our beginning on the backside of the tracks. There's no doubt about it. I remember when I was in, in school, now I did not give my heart to the Lord until I was, I think, 20, uh, 21 years of age to be. April 15, 1961, I gave my heart to the Lord. My mother was a praying woman. My grandfather was a praying man. My grandfather never went past the first grade in school. Did you know my grandfather went eight years and never got out of the first grade? And the reason why is because he was a, a cotton farmer. His father was. And he'd go to school a little while, and he'd have to... Uh, he'd have to uh, for, first, he never would start until around Christmas time, and then... In Texas, around March, he had to pull out. And uh, he, he didn't know how to read. He didn't know how to write. Uh, he was not what you would call a very successful businessman, but he was a good farmer. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the cotton patches, picking cotton, chopping cotton, and plowing behind mules. I, I never did any plowing when I was farming with a tractor. It was always behind mules. I have walked and walked and walked until I thought my legs were going to fall off. Now one of the reasons why that I did not give my heart to the Lord, to be frank with you, is because that the Pentecostal movement at that time was considered to be the off-scouring of the earth. I mean, they were on the back side of the tracks. The first church that I attended was just a little slab building. 
It was made out of slabs from a sawmill. The man who owned the sawmill gave my grandfather and his brother permission to build a church, and they built it out of slabs from a sawmill. And they built it on the sawmill property. And we had no windows in the building, just just holes there. Uh, No doors, just an opening. And uh, the people would come, and we had the lantern stretched out across the top of the uh, of the uh, the building there the, where the rafters were. We hooked the lanterns to it. And uh, in the schools where I went, if you told them you were Pentecost, you know, people laughed at you. They sneered at you. It was uh, it was it was bad. I mean, they thought you were they thought you were just plain ignorant and uh, no good. Uh, I'm, I'm serious with you. Now, some of you can remember that. You know, we really, we, we were born on the other side of the tracks. Now, the thing about it is, uh, the grace of God began to be poured out upon us. The, the word grace means unmerited favor. It also means divine influence of the heart. But um, uh, in the sense that I use, it means unmerited favor. God began to bless us. And, and He began to pour out His abundant blessings upon us. And God began to, to use us. And, and after a while, uh, we moved our churches closer and closer and closer to the tracks. Then after a while, a few people crossed over and went to the downtown areas. After a while, all of us crossed over and went to the downtown areas. At the same time in which God was blessing us and moving us into a place of prominence, uh, there was a deterioration in the society of, of uh, the world. And it seems like as we were moving on one side, the whole world was going back to the other side. Now just follow me very carefully. See, I, I happened to ride to this camp meeting in a Lincoln Town car. Now several years ago, uh, that would just been just an impossibility. You know, just to own a car like that. When I walked to the tabernacle this morning, I counted several Cadillacs parked out here. You go to our general conferences, and we've even had people in the city. They wonder, what kind, is this some kind of a fashion show? Now, I'm not being critical of this. Listen to me before you pass judgment. Uh, is this some kind of a fashion show? Because they see our ladies so well-dressed, and their hair is fixed up so nice, and I've, I've had people in restaurants tell me, I have never seen so many $100 bills. Never. So we've never, we've never fed a group of people that had money like these people have money. Uh, I've even had pulled out a $100 bill, and I've had people say, I'm sorry, but we just don't have any change. I've never seen so many $100 bills. I have had other businessmen where I've purchased clothing and such to say, I have never seen so many fancy cars, so many Cadillacs, so many Lincolns, so many Mercedes and such. I said, what kind of a convention is this anyway? Well, I said, it's a church convention. A church convention? I thought Christians were supposed to be poor, sworn to poverty. Well, that's not really what the Bible says, but see, some people have that idea. In other words, it seems like that we pretty much traded places with the world. Now, the thing that bothers me is that while we have traded places with the world, in many cases, and there's nothing wrong with that because it's God that's blessed us. The problem is that so many of us have actually traded, we have actually traded attitudes with the world also. See, that's the problem right there. 
That is the problem. That while people look down their noses at us and consider us to be the off-scouring of the earth, many of us now are looking down upon the world and considering the world to be where we were years ago. See? And so as a result then, we become extremely critical of people that don't have educations. We become extremely critical people who are in poverty. We say, well, if they work like I worked, then they'd be where I am. That is not true, my friend. Grace means unmerited favor. It means that you put your confidence and trust in God, and God raised you a point of, of prominence. Not necessarily by any particular thing you did, but because He loved you and He cared for you. Now, I could go all the way back to the Old Testament. And I could name story after story after story where the same thing happened to God's men and women, just like it's happened to us today. So we want to be very careful. Inasmuch as we have traded places with the world, we don't want to trade attitudes with the world. Because it is a known fact that uh, we have had uh, some criticism against us. There have been other religious denominations that have thought that we were very bigoted and we were cruel. And you know, in some cases, we, we have been just that. We have been cruel. Uh, I, remember, uh, I remember times in which, uh, uh, if you want to know the truth, uh, we didn't have the best holiness standard. Now, I'm serious. I, I've, seen people, I've seen people sing in some of our... Our churches that are strong now, but they, they were considered to be strong then, but the ladies cut their hair. I've seen ladies uh, that had uh, beads on and jewelry on and such, and they, they sung. I'm talking about way back, see, in the 40s. And, uh, but God began to reveal, and God began to show, and God began to direct, and, and, and we became strong and stronger and stronger. And, uh, you know, uh, what is important to God is not the level that you're on as much as the direction that you're traveling. See? God has so put it in His plan that one man can be filled with the Holy Ghost today, and perhaps his convictions are not real strong like yours. And uh, because he was filled with the Holy Ghost and baptized in Jesus' name, he goes home and sleeps well. And we tell the man it's nice that his name's on heaven's roll the Lamb's Book of Life. But there's a vast difference between what this man believes and somebody that's been in the church 20 or 30 years. And there should be. And the reason why that this man can be saved and you can be saved is because the mercy of God endureth forever. The word mercy means withholding of judgment. That simply means God should judge, but He does not judge. He extends leniency and mercy we will never reach the place, regardless of how much we mature in God, that we don't need mercy. We'll always need mercy. We'll never reach the place that we're not in need of mercy. And I feel very confident telling a new convert that your name's been placed on the Lamb's Book of Life. Doesn't, isn't it great to be rapture-ready? And he says, yes. Well, you find out weeks later he's doing a whole lot of things that if you personally did, you wouldn't consider yourself to be rapture-ready at all. See? But it is possible, see, to be way up there someplace on that growth scale and the rapture takes place and you not go up. And somebody be way down here on the growth scale 
and they go up. And you may say, how in the world could you say that that could happen? What is important to God is not so much the level that you are, but the direction that you're traveling. See, you can be up there and you can be going back downhill. But see, we always predicate spiritual growth on the things we see with our eyes. And for this reason, then, we can drive a new car, we can live in a new home, we can have a brand new building, we can have uh, all kinds of financial securities and such, and still be just as rotten to the core inside as, as the Pharisees were. Do you follow what I'm saying? And, and this is so very, very important. So we've crossed over, we've traded positions. But we, we don't want to trade attitudes with the world. Now turn with me to Matthew 13. And I do feel liberty in the Holy Ghost to minister. I don't want to take a lot of time, but I, I want to cover some things here and cover them well. If I don't get my message finished, we'll just stop and, and say hallelujah and amen and, and let it go. But uh, Jesus gave uh, seven parables in Matthew 13. Now, I have uh, come to the conclusion after reading these parables that the parables of Matthew 13 coincide with the seven letters to the churches of Asia. Now, I will not have found in Revelation 2 and 3. I'll not have time to get into all of that. But uh, uh, Jesus, the first parable Jesus gave uh, was about the sower. He went forth to sow seed. Some seed fell by the wayside, some upon stony ground. Some fell among thorns, and some fell in good ground. Now, <clears throat> in verse 6, we know that when he said the sun was sprung up, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. And then verse 7, that's the stony ground. Verse 7, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. Then some fell on good ground. Now, Jesus explained this later on. And if you look at uh, verse uh, uh, 22, I think this would cover the verse that I want to talk about. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choked the word and he became unfruitful. Now notice the word unfruitful is found here. What Jesus wants to see in us is fruit. That's extremely important. Extremely important for us. Now, a lot of people, now let me just, uh, I want to word this right so that you, uh, so that you get the, the total story of what I'm saying, or the feeling that I'm trying to convey to you. Uh, I went through a period in my life in which I think that uh, uh, if you, if you uh, looked in some of the successful living books, uh, it would be called burned out. We hear a lot about being burned out. Uh, and this got to be a real concern. I, I know that there's a lot of preachers talking about being burned out. There's a lot of saints being, that talk about being burned out. And, and I, don't want you, I don't want to convey the message to you that, that uh, you can't get burned out. I think some people can get burned out. They, they need vacations. They need a time of rest. I've taken the liberty in this camp meeting to, to rest a little bit uh, because I have a camp meeting coming up next week. I want to be fresh. I'm leaving here and going to California. Uh, I don't want to be tired when I get there. 
But uh, I wrestled with this business about being burned out. In other words, I, I went to church and I didn't have my heart in it. I studied and I didn't want to study. I said, oh no, tonight's church night and I've got to, I've got to preach. And uh, you know, I, I was going through a lot of the mechanics of it. Uh, I was. I come to the conclusion, however, that, that a lot of burned out is not really burned out. It's choked out. Just be, Christians get choked. Choked out. If you notice uh, what Jesus was saying, he said the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. That uh, you, you have to be extremely careful when you are on the end, the productive end of a move of God where the blessings of the Lord are flowing. God can give you so many commodities that it just takes up all of your time caring for them. And I think, the, I think when it says the cares of this life means the things that you ought to care about, you probably care about too much. See, uh, I think it's only a, a mark of a, of a good steward if God gives you a pair of shoes that, that you keep those shoes shined. See, one of the spirits of the last days, men should be unthankful. See, you never, you never take care of the things that you're, un, that you're not thankful for. If God gives you a new suit, you keep it pressed and you keep it clean and you maintain it. If He gives you a new car, you do the same thing. You're going to keep it polished and keep it maintained, keep it going. That's the mark of a good steward. When you become unthankful, you know, you just let it go and let it rust out and let it collect dust and you don't change the oil in it and everything. And after a while, the thing falls apart. That, that's uh, the mark of an unwise steward. But there is such a thing as taking the thing that God has given to you and putting too much emphasis on it. You know, would you care too much about the things that you ought to care for? And then he talks about the deceitfulness of riches. While God has blessed us and given us money and given us a state of prominence, there is such a thing as allowing those things to deceive us. That we get the feeling too secure with those things. So I think that, that the condition that I had was not really a condition of burned out as much as just choked out. Uh, quite frankly, uh, if you want to know the truth, it, it, to, to put it in, in, in real plain, honest language, I was probably froze out rather than burned out. See? <clears throat> And, and Jesus says, no, you've got to be careful, see. Uh, just because you start out as good ground doesn't mean that it's going to stay good ground. See? Satan sowed the tares among the wheat, and let me tell you something. He comes and puts some thorns on a good patch of ground. If you don't maintain your life, that can happen to you. Now, in this time in which I feel that... that uh, uh, I was, I felt I was burned out. I did a lot of things to combat this. Uh, I talked to a good number of preachers, and they said, "Well, I've experienced that before. And what you need is a vacation." Well, I didn't feel I had time to take a vacation, and I was just so busy doing the work of the Lord, and and yet at the same time, it seemed like my heart wasn't there. I just, uh, I just, uh, there was something happening to me, and I couldn't really figure out what was happening to me. I went so far as at the request of two or three ministers, and I'm not being critical of them, uh, we had a PMA rally in Milwaukee. We had uh, uh, Dr. Schuler there, and, 
And we had W. Clement Stone and Norman Vincent Peale, a lot of the big names in the PMA business, positive mental attitude. And I went there and I listened to all of this and I'd get up in the morning and, oh, I'm going to be successful. Now, you, I'll tell you what, you've got to watch these PMA books, let me tell you something, because there's a touch of humanism in them. You've got to watch that. Because I've seen, I've seen some of our preachers, Brother Connor, uh, get too, too, too deep into this stuff. And let me tell you something. When you start squaring your shoulders and walking around and sticking your head up in the clouds and feeling that you're better than everybody else, my friend, you're not wise and harmless. You're going to hurt people. You're going to cut people. Now, I, I do believe that... that uh, and I know that a lot of people say, oh, well, we need to just learn to love ourselves. The problem is that, that no, nobody, I, I'm, I'm convinced of this. Listen to me. I'm convinced of this. When Paul said, no man yet hated his own flesh, you know, even the man that commits suicide, he is so much in love with him that himself that he cannot take criticism. He's soured on self. And so when somebody looks at him, he, he gets the idea, they're talking about me, and I can't take that, so i got to go kill myself. Now, I don't want to be in opposition to your thinking, but we've got some scriptures that we want to consider here today. So, I think the symptoms of choke out are no revival. I talked about symptoms of spiritual sicknesses yesterday, but in this case... The symptoms of burnout, as we'd call it, are choked out or, or no revival, a lack of prayer. You may say, did you forget to pray, Brother Grant? Listen, and I can, I can concur with Brother Travis. The Lord filled me with the Holy Ghost April 15, 1961. And every day of my life since that time, I have always found a place to kneel and pray before I retire. I just, I was taught that. I believed that. And then, of course, another, so I prayed. But there is such a thing as praying, but yet not praying. You see? And then, uh, you know, if you, you start watching your watch all the time when you're praying. Uh, when you, you know, you're looking for, is time, is time up? Somebody asked me, how long should you pray? Well, the secret to that is found in, in just, a, just a simple line of logic. Paul said we should pray without ceasing. That simply means that you pray until you can't stop praying. So when you, when you get down in the morning and you pray till you can't stop praying, now that doesn't mean if you, know, if you set an hour aside, ten minutes later you feel, I can't quit praying so I get up and go to work. No, I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about just forget about the clock, forget about everything, and just pray until you can't stop praying. So that when you get up and you walk out and you face the world... You can pray without ceasing. And all this old garbage that gets people down and gets them in a bad uh, way. And, you know, your car's going to have flats and such, you know, and you want to kick the door in. All that, all that stuff's gone, see. So you pray until, until you just simply don't, you can't quit. So you go down the freeway and somebody uh, passes you and, and makes an obscene gesture or something. You just praise the Lord. You know, you don't have any feelings like, well, I would like to get out and cut the guy's head off or something. See? You follow what I'm saying? Things like that don't get you down. Then, of course, a lack of worship. Uh, 
I could spend a lot of time on these. I'm not going to spend much time on these because I have something else that I feel that's extremely important to get into, a lack of worship. Stiffness between people. We talked about that yesterday. Then, of course, uh, too much emphasis placed on material things. Dependence on entertainment rather than on a move of the Lord. You become critical of somebody that sings and don't sing well even if the Holy Ghost flows. Well, yeah, they, they danced in the Spirit and people did, however. Now let me tell you something about carnality that I think is extremely important for you to understand. Carnality is not really that spirit that just makes you go lusting after bad things all the time and keep your mind on bad things. You see, we have a natural mind and we have a spiritual mind. Or we have a carnal mind. Now, Basically, I can add 2 plus 2 and get 4, as Brother Travis spoke of. Now, that's, that's my natural mind, see? 2 plus 2 is 4. See? 3 plus 3 is 6. That's my natural mind. So our natural mind just collects data. But how we, how we uh, emphasize that or, or how we use that natural uh, knowledge... Is, is determined in two ways, uh, whether we're spiritual or whether we're carnal. In other words, carnality means the application of, of basic knowledge. In other words, how do you apply this? Now, you can be carnal and be, you can have a carnal mind in some areas and have a spiritual mind in other areas. Now, let me explain that. This is the reason why that when, when the prophet came in and told David about the, the man with the, the, the ewe lamb and, and about him being slain and all of this, David said, who was that man? Bring him in and, and we'll kill it. Now, he was going to make spiritual application because it involves somebody other than himself. So he was able to proceed. In other words, he just took the evidence and stacked it all up and said the man's worthy of death. But see, when he took all the evidence of his own adulterous life and stacked it up, he said, why can't I be king? You know, it, it's, you see this in your church quite often. Somebody does something, the first thing you say is, who did it? Now, the reason why you say, who did it, is because you want to know how to pass judgment. Was it my kid? Or was it your kid? <laughs> See, so you can. This is the way you. This is the way. So carnality then is you come to church and you worship. The preacher preaches. Say, did he preach good? Well, not so good. But there'll be another night. Anybody get the Holy Ghost? No, but so what? We baptize anybody. We ain't baptize anybody for months, but we won't worry about that because. What you know, they're, they're, it'll it'll start happening after a while. See, that's that's carnality. That's carnality first class. It's just floating with a status quo. That if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, that's still all right. But, you know, we baptized twenty people last night. Fantastic. You go a month or two, we haven't baptized somebody in a month. Well, that's still all right. We baptized twenty in a month ago. See, that's the way carnality works now the last symptom and I guess this is a summary of all the other symptoms is 
there's a lack of conversions. Nobody's getting the Holy Ghost after a while because nobody is really caring that much. Just keep the church doors open and keep the plant going and, and so forth, and that's, that's all there is to it. Now, do you know, you know what I did in solving my particular situation? I just started searching through the Bible. I said, well, all this PMA stuff, I'm a, I'm a preacher. You know that some of that stuff, Norman Vincent Peel this, Norman Vincent Peel that. Let me tell you something. Some of that stuff, if you read the epistles, my friend, you won't find that kind of language in those epistles. Now, some you'll find a scripture every now and then. But see, when I read Paul's writings, I found him to be very appealing. When I read Peel's writings, I found him to be very appalling. You know, they're just, just, they didn't seem to, <laughs> they, something just wasn't quite right, Brother Connor. And I said, now wait just a minute. Does the Bible contain the answer for me or does it not? And so I began to read and I read the first letter to the church at Ephesus and it seemed to fit me to a T. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, Revelation 2 verse 1, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. I'm going to stop there and I'm going to make a statement. This statement you may have never considered before. It is possible to hate sin and not love Jesus. And if you want to know the truth, I think a lot of our churches are in that category. They hate sin, but they do not love Jesus. It's possible for preachers to make a strong stand and yet not be in love with God. Remember, the spirit that must prevail when there are signs and wonders and miracles must be the spirit that Jesus gave to those twelve we must be wise and harmless. Wise and harmless. And you know, when you're up here behind the pulpit and the anointing of God's upon you, it's easy to be nasty. Sometimes it just feels better when you get nasty. You know? You follow what I'm saying? I'm not trying to take away from anointed preaching. I'm not trying to take away from strong preaching. I think we need to hate sin, but at the same time we need to love Jesus but they didn't love Jesus. And I caught myself in this position. We didn't let down on our holiness standard. If you're singing the choir, you got to... And I'd rather the service end early and go out and get a hamburger and go home and go to sleep than to pray at the altar with some dying soul for a while. Does this sound too tough? I'm probably relating to a condition that you've gone through sometime in your Christian experience. So I said, Lord, the Bible somewhere must have the answer. And I began to read this, and as I read it, I said, this has fits me to a T. And then he said, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. He said, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and 
what? Me? Repent? I said, now Lord, evidently, I don't know what repentance is all about. You're telling me I need to repent? I don't drink. I don't curse. I don't swear. I don't dip. I don't chew. I don't smoke. And I'm supposed to repent? I said, now that just doesn't hardly make sense. Well, I said, I'm going to make a good study on repentance. And evidently there's some something about this business of repentance that I don't understand. So... I had lost my desire, see. I'd lost my first love. And I began to look. I ran across a passage of Scripture that Paul wrote. I'd like to call your attention to that. So if you'll take, turn your, win your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7, 11. Uh, let's look, look at verse 10 to start with. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For godless sorrow worketh repentance to, to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold the selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you, what clearing of yourself, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, what zeal, what revenge. I'm just going to stop there. I read this and I began to look at this and I said, now wait a minute. I'm not for sure that I know what this man's talking about. And I looked at it and looked at it and I prayed and prayed. I made a, as much of a study of repentance in the Bible as I possibly could. Now, let me just ask you something here, just, just a moment, <clears throat> before we go any further. How many of you, when you prayed at the altar and repented, you told the Lord that you would go any place that he wanted you to go? How many of you prayed that? <clears throat> How many of you said, Lord, I'll say anything that you want me to say? Brother Wilman was talking about, about Jonah this morning. Now let me ask you this. What does that have to do with repentance? Most of you would say nothing. Why is it then that when we're at an altar, we all say that? We all do that. Did you know that the truth of the matter is, when you look in the Bible, you look at the word submission, you look at the word humility. Did you know you can't separate those from repentance? You, there's no way you can. Do you know even, even the word sanctification cannot be separated from repentance? Now let me just explain something. Sanctification is, is found, is explained better in the scripture that the word sanctification is not found at all in Romans the 12th chapter verse 1 and 2 than any place that I know in the Bible. Now listen very carefully as I quote it. I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, basically, justification means Christ made us just as if we never sinned. Now, justification and sanctification seem to be twin brothers in the Scripture. 
But for the most part, justification, in justification, Christ died for us. In sanctification, we die for Him. And repentance is that death to self. This is the reason why the prophet Isaiah said, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In repentance, there is that reasoning that comes from God. So when you bend your knee down and you say, God, forgive me, He begins to reason with you. It's the turning over of your life to Him. It's the submission. It's the, it's the, the humbling of yourself. It's the sanctifying of yourself. You see, repentance, evidently then, is not all negative. A lot of it is positive. Because we all said, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. That's a positive action. Lord, I'll go do anything you want me to do. And, and I would say that, that any one of you, that tried to convince me that you prayed at the altar and you asked God to forgive you of your sins and you never you never committed yourself to that point, you didn't receive the Holy Ghost either. Now, <clears throat> we're getting into some pretty deep stuff here. Now, what Paul was really talking about, Brother Connor, as far as I can see in the Scripture... He says, just like the Holy Ghost, and we're not trying to take away from the Holy Ghost and His power in you. That just happens not to be our subject today. That just like the Holy Ghost has a particular fruit, the fruit of the Spirit's found in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. But just like the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit has a particular fruit. You know, John the Baptist said, bring forth meat, fruit unto repentance. And every now and then we tell a person at the altar or we tell some saints that, well, he prayed at the altar, but there seems to be, he says he's repenting, but there's no fruit of repentance. What are we looking for? Most of the time, we're just looking for tears. And that's it. Now, how many of you have seen the man that came to the altar and he repented, at least to the degree that we call repentance? He repented and... <clears throat> And he came back the next service and the next service and the next service and after a while, he's, a year's gone by, he's still praying. Uh, pretty soon, you know, he's paying his tithes and everything. And the pastor said, man, I, he approaches the pastor and said, I'd like, to, I'd like to be used. Can I be an usher or something? And the pastor says, well, not until you receive the Holy Ghost. And uh, I'm all tangled up down here on something. Here we go. Brother Wilma turning these... Circles up here got this thing all twisted up. <laughs> I'm going to have to go the other way for the God. But, <clears throat> but here you got this, and the pastor says, well, I can't use you as an usher. You don't have the Holy Ghost. He said, well, I'm paying my tithes and everything. And I've heard, uh, and I've even said this, well, you know, he, he's just a good, clean man. He's living a repented life. Now, he makes his way down to the altar to the conclusion of my message, and all of a sudden, here steps out 
A man that doesn't know anything about God. He's never been to the altar in his life. He runs down to the altar and he slides into the altar like a runner sliding into second base. Man, he throws up his hands and he begins to pray and seek the Lord. And the saints of the Lord gather around him before they even have time to give him instruction. This man's already speaking in tongues. Now, later on you find out he, he smokes. Now wait a minute, did he repent or did he not? You know, obviously, this man gets up from the altar, no Holy Ghost, hadn't smoked a cigarette now in 12 years. That maybe there is something in repentance that some of us really don't see. Now, God passed judgment upon this man's faith and gave him the Holy Ghost. God, for some reason, withheld the Holy Ghost from this man. This man hasn't cried a tear in years. You know, when you're praying with a person, you can tell when they get close to receiving the Holy Ghost, there seems to be a hunger that develops in them. Jesus said, He that hungereth and thirsteth after righteousness shall be filled. Well, when Paul gave us the fruits of repentance, notice what he says. Now, he said, Godly sorrow worked with repentance to salvation. Verse 11, he said, Behold this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. He said, Now, here's one of the, here's one of the fruits of repentance. It brings about a carefulness in you. You become extremely concerned about pleasing God. You don't want to do anything wrong. I was so concerned about pleasing God whenever I prayed at the altar. When I gargled with Listerine, I was afraid I was going to swallow a little alcohol. Now, I didn't go tell everybody that, but you know what? You may say, oh, that's crazy. Well, I'm not saying it wasn't. But I'm saying that there's a carefulness that comes in. You just want to be right. See, you just, you know. <clears throat> I'm not telling you that after you spit this stuff out, if you swallow, you're, you're wrong. I'm just trying to prove that point. It brought a carefulness in you. Notice it says, what clearing of yourselves. So there are some negative things around repentance. It does clear you up. In John, the 14th chapter, verse 30, Jesus said, When the prince of the earth came and inquired of me, he found nothing of himself in me. It looks like that Satan came and just opened up and looked inside of Jesus, and there was nothing inside of Jesus that was of his own kingdom. So a man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust. And there was nothing in there that reminded Satan of his own kingdom. And there's nothing more precious in all the world than to have your heart cleansed and purified. Now some people, because of that, that load of sin leaves them, they interpret that to be salvation. That's not salvation. But you need that clearing. You know, it's like the calculator that's on my watch. Now, I use this calculator. People say, you can't use this. Sure, I can, I can take my finger and press these little bitty tiny buttons. I couldn't 
do it recently until I got new glasses. My old glasses went bad. But every now and then you'll find out you'll, you'll put 12 plus 12 is 24. Then you go 6 plus 6 is 12. But you look down there, you don't have 24. You have 36. And so the right answer is not on the screen simply because there was no clearing. And the reason why sometimes that the wrong things flow out of us is because we fail to clear ourselves. See, you can't keep that wise and harmless attitude without that clearing. And then he goes on to say, what indignation. Now you'll notice what's happening here now. The, the stories begin to switch now. It's leaving the negative and going to the positive. What indignation. God puts in you a righteous anger against sin and iniquity. And then he goes on, he says, Yea, what fear. There is a respect and a fear. I, I'm persuaded that nobody comes to God because they love God. They come to God because they fear God. My, when I came to the Lord, the preacher had to make hell mighty hot for me. And when I came to the Lord, I was afraid I was going to burn in hell. I, you know, I've heard people say, oh, you've you got to preach love to people so that they'll come to the altar. Listen, you don't love God when you are a sinner. You respond out of fear. I don't want to die lost. I don't want to go to hell. Now, we love Him now because He first loved us. And then he, now notice how positive now he gets. He says, yea, what vehement desire. I taught a home Bible study to a girl, my wife and I, and this girl told us, she said, you know, I'd really like to serve God, but I don't have the desire to. Now, you'd never think the desire had anything to do with repentance, would you? It does. That's Now we're beginning to enter into the positive area, dealing with, I'll go where you want me to go, Lord. I'll say what you want me to say. And this is the reason why that at the altar, God makes missionaries out of a lot of people, but later on they take it back. See, you can be a prodigal and sit on a Pentecostal pew because you have gone back and said, give me the portion of goods that belongeth to me. In other words, God will let you take it back anytime you want it back. And so what happens, we feel at the altar, God called us to be a missionary. Ten years later, living in plush style and everything, we say, well, God changed that calling. Now, he could have done that, but what happens to a lot of us is this. We changed our opinion. Yea, what zeal. I mean, read, read Acts 17. 
or Acts 18, Apollos was a man who was fervent in the spirit. He had zeal. I meant real zeal. But he did not know anything but the baptism of John. And do you think it's possible that some of these people in these denominal churches not really knowing the power of the Holy Ghost, but yet perhaps possessing the ability to be real honest with God every day could have more zeal than you could have even when you know the truth, but you don't do what God wants you to do every day? See, success in God is not predicated upon any one great thing you ever do. But success in God is predicated upon continual occurrences like the woman who went to the unjust judge and she said, deliver me from mine adversary. Now somebody told me that that's talking about faith. If you want something from God, you just pester the daylights out of him day after day and after a while he's going to say, okay, you can have it. No, the context of it is this. She prayed, deliver me from mine adversary. And the Lord says, if he being unjust know how to answer this woman, how much more shall your heavenly Father know how to avenge you? So every day, 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 every day. So I come in here at 6 o'clock this morning. I knelt right over there. Brother Connor was right here. I was not just listening to his prayer, but he was saying, God, purify me, cleanse me. Oh, God, what have you done wrong? Was not it Jesus that prayed? And Jesus, who never knew any sin, prayed and lead us not into temptation? but deliver us from evil. Do you know why that Jesus Christ went out alone in the blackness of the night and left disciples asleep and prayed to God? Because He had to pray to God. Do you know why He rose early in the morning and went out before light and prayed while others were asleep? Because He felt the necessity of doing so. And if he be God manifest in human flesh and understanding the need to do so, how much more should we mortals who are the seed of Adam understand our need to get a hold of God? When you feel choked out or burned out or froze out or whatever you call it, my friend, you need to hit the altar like a blaze of lightning, repenting! This man got the Holy Ghost because he had a desire to serve God. He didn't know much about sin. He just lumped them all together and said, God, forgive me. This man was so picky with his life and he, he, he took every little old thing out, but he still didn't have that desire. This girl said, I'd live for God, but I don't have a desire. I'm not saying this critical. I, I please understand when I say this. You know, Brother Alan Oggs wrote the book. You've got to have the want to. And I heard him preach that message. But I went away and I said, "But how do I get the want to? You know, what's going to put that want to in me? 
I didn't pray tonight because I, 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 I wanted to, but I didn't want to. I just, I just couldn't seem to make myself. Let me tell you something. You can operate Christianity on discipline for so long, and after a while, it go turn sour on you. There's got to be something welling up inside of you. There's got to be something pushing those prayers out of you. It's got to, it's got to live inside of you. How many times have you not been able to come up with a Sunday school lesson and you didn't know what to tell those kids but you went to God in prayer and you prayed and prayed and prayed and all of a sudden something refreshing came over your soul and you got up and you said, Oh, now I know what to say. And you couldn't wait until you entered into that classroom. I've gone in my office and said, Lord, I don't even want to preach tonight. I don't know what to say. And I've thumbed through books and books and books and books and books and books. I can't find a thing. I can't find a thing. I go to the Lord in prayer, and all of a sudden as I begin to pray, and I begin to seek God, and I begin to call upon His name, there's something that begins to push that prayer out of me. It's red hot. It's fervent. I couldn't wait till 7 o'clock. God gave me something. Got to unburden my soul to these people. Got a zeal. Got a desire. Got a want to. Let's lift our hands, would you? Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. Oh. Oh, God. My Jesus, my Jesus, my Jesus. What revenge? What revenge? What do you mean revenge? No, it's not talking about getting even with a brother or sister. It's talking about getting even with the devil. Now let me ask you something. How many of you would like for the devil to stop chasing you? Raise your hand. Look at all the hands. Let me tell you something very simple. Now this is very... You may later on feel I tricked you into raising your hand. I really did. Sure. We'll just clear up the matter. Uh, I wanted all of you to raise your hand. Some of you are too smart. Uh, I came out of the church, walking across the church parking lot. Here comes a little girl out of breath. She's in her kindergarten. She grabs my leg. She said, Brother Grant, she said, uh, uh, would you stop uh, uh, these two boys... uh, uh, from chasing me. Uh, Tony and I forgot the name of the other boy now. Another boy. Sister Grant may remember because she remembers this situation. And I said, uh, her name was Michelle. And I said, uh, okay. I said, uh, were they bothering you a lot? She said, yeah. She said, every time I walk away, they just run at me. She said, I want you to stop them from chasing me. So what they did, they walked off. See, they didn't want to be a part of it. See, way off on the other side of the parking lot. And I said, okay. I, she, I knelt down, looked her right in the eye. And I said, you don't want Tony and this other boy to chase you? She said, yeah. I said, the secret is in this. Stop running. She says, oh. I said, yeah. That's how you stop being chased. Stop running. <laughs> I said, now look, Michelle, 
Now let's play a little game, okay? I said, <laughs> I'm going to go to my car. It's just parked way down there. And you just walk across here and I'll watch you. And when they run at you, don't run. See what happens. So I walk down the car and I'm not paying any attention. But I am, you know. And all of a sudden, they came out from behind the shrubs. They walked down there, you know. They thought, well, we're going to wait till the pastor gets a little ways away. So they walked down and here they're ready. Yeah. All of a sudden, I turned around. They made a lunge. <laughs> Michelle just didn't do a thing. They backed off and looked at each other. They ran again. She just walked on. They looked at each other. And they were supposed to. And they said, they went the other way. You want to get the devil off your back? Stop running. You want the devil to stop chasing you? Stop running! God's looking for devil chasers! Jesus I know and Paul I know but you I don't know and the truth of the matter is the man was chased until he was stripped but they didn't chase Jesus and they didn't chase Paul it appears that Paul had an insight on what Jesus had an insight on and that is how to be revengeful when it comes to satanic powers and forces. Now I know my time's up. Brother uh, Brother Connor told me to take as much time as I wanted to take. Uh, this is all the time I want to take. <clears throat> but with your vote, I'll go five more minutes. Alright? If you uh, with your vote. <clears throat> All right. What I'd like for you to do, if you would, is turn to First Peter, the fourth chapter. And this is uh, this is something that I think we ought to look at. First Peter four, verse seventeen. The Bible says, "For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God." And if it first began at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? What shall the end be, rather, of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? I spent 13 weeks with our church one time on the Sermon on the Mount. We had had a split in our church prior to my coming. And uh, I noticed that the people uh, had a very, very different attitude toward those, those, those other people that were at the, that split away from our church. Basically, this is what happened. Okay, <clears throat> uh, they were kind of fighting carnality with carnality. A group of people left because they didn't like this, that, and the other, and started gossiping and everything. And I'm not saying that the split would not have occurred if I had been pastor. I'm not saying that at all. Follow what I'm saying? But you see, after a while, you can become just as guilty as the next man if you 
If you fight with the instruments he's fighting with. You see, our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty to the pulling down of the strongholds of Satan. Not to the building up of his kingdom, but to the pulling down. Our weapons are mighty because they are spiritual weapons. They're not carnal. So if somebody talks about you, what do you do? You talk about them in return. Somebody does you wrong, you do wrong to them in return. Well, I just saw that this wasn't right. Rather than make a big deal out of it, I thought what I'd do is just teach on the Sermon on the Mount. So I spent 13 weeks. At the conclusion of it, we began to have all week prayer and fasting. All week prayer and fasting. Now, as we began to pray and fast, something began to happen to us. Now, when Peter said judgment begins at the house of God, I basically think, primarily taken into context and what he's saying here, is that because he's talking about the righteous scarcely be saying, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? I think basically what he's saying is there is a time in which the creator of all the earth feels that mankind must be judged. Read all of 1 Peter and that's what you find. Read all of 2 Peter, that's what you find. But he says before God will judge any world, the first thing that he does is look down upon his own people and he begins to judge them. Now, that simply means that in prayer, the Holy Ghost is going to call out to me all of the discrepancies of my life. Have you ever found that when you're praying for your neighbor, it seems like you find out more about yourself than ever before? Isn't it something that when you start praying for revival that you find out more about your own inconsistencies than you ever knew before? See, when God wanted to judge the antediluvian world, he looked down and said, The Spirit of God shall not always strive with man. And then the next thing you find, he says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. See? In other words, before I'm going to destroy this world, I'm going to purify Noah. Because, you see, Noah would be the measuring stick by which the world will be judged. Wasn't it Peter that says that the saints of the, of the earth will be responsible for the judging of mankind? It doesn't mean that we're going to sit on the throne and say, you go to hell and, and you go to heaven, you go to hell and you go... No, it simply means that even at the white throne judgment, that some people will be without excuse because they say, well, I didn't do this, and, and well, there's one that did. Well, I couldn't do this. Well, that one up there did. See? And as we began to pray and we began to seek the Lord, I remember about two nights into this, God, God performed a miracle. We had a husband that was so mad. He didn't come to church. He was a drunkard. He just did a little bit of everything. He later on served some time in prison for, for, for some things that he had done. But... He came into our church, into the vestibule. And a young lady had walked out of the church and went into the vestibule and was getting a drink of water. And this man came up and took this girl by the arm and says, You go in and get my wife up from that altar. The smell of alcohol. Cigarettes. You know, the two just don't seem to go together to me. I just get sick when I smell those. All right. 
This young lady says, Sir, I can't do this. And uh, Connie Gillum, she's since married, her last name's not Gillum now, told Bob Puckett. You know Bob Puckett. By the way, Bob's doing real good in our church now. Coming to all the services. He sure struggled. But Connie told Bob, if you want your wife, you'll have to go get her. I'm not taking her from the altar. And so he walked into the building, walked down the side, where the lights were all dim, and he came up behind his wife, and his wife was down praying. And this is what she was saying. God, I want to be saved. Lord, I want to be a witness. God, give me a desire to win the lost. Purify me and cleanse me, oh God, I want to be saved. The reason why I know what she was saying is because I saw the man come in and I knew that he had devilish eyes. So I rose from where I was and I came and stood there. Here he is, he's going to get his wife up from the altar. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, I think it's verse 34, if we will judge ourselves, we will not be judged. The judgment seat of Christ, my friend, is set up right now. Some men's sins go before to be judged. Others come after. And here's a woman that's pronouncing judgment upon herself. God, I want to be clean. I want to be pure. I want to be holy. I want to go to heaven, Lord. Give me a desire to win the loss. And her husband stood there, and I walked up by his side. And you know what he said to me? He said, that's my wife praying? Dear God, he said, as holy as she is, as clean and pure as this woman is, if she's got to pray like that, he said, what's going to happen to me? and saw the church sign on the very next night. Somebody came to the phone and said, there's a telephone call for you. And I went to the phone and I said, uh, yes. And he said, uh, he introduced himself. I didn't know who he was. He said, I'm across the street at a shopping mall. I said, what are you doing there? He said, I don't know. I said, well, what's the situation? He said, I don't know. I said, well, I mean, why did you call me? He said, I don't know that either. I said, well, wait a minute. Now, take your time. And let's, let's go over this. He said, well, really, he said, I don't know what's wrong. He said, I just walked down the, the street. I was just walking down the street. And he said, I just saw the church sign. He said, you know, there's a fear came over me. Just a, a funny feeling. And he said, I thought I'd run. I came over here to the shopping center, walked over here. But he said, the longer I stay here, the, the worse I feel, he said. 
He said, I, I remember the name of the sign. So I looked up the number in the book. And he said, I don't know. He said, I just started to tremble. He said, I, I can't, I'm crying. I can't control myself. I don't have any idea what's wrong. He said, I just I feel strange. He said, I feel funny. I said, well, I'd meet you at the door if you'd come over. So he came over, and when he got to the door, he was already praying. I took him inside. He didn't pay any attention to people lying prostrate all over the floor, praying, repenting. We went straight down to the altar. And while we were praying, all of a sudden he jumped. And I said, what's wrong? He pulled his boot off, and he had a knife about this long. I said, what are you doing with that knife? He said, well... I guess I might as well tell the whole story. He said, I'm involved in drugs. And he said, I did a, a bad drug deal and there's some guys after me to kill me. Now here's a man that God wanted to judge. But God says, let judgment first begin at the church. He put a measuring stick. Mr. Snyder. He laid the knife on the altar. We took him to the baptismal tank, and in the tank that night he received the Holy Ghost. Let me tell you something. Do you know why God is dealing less with about Christian principles? Do you know why God, I believe, has laid on my heart to teach simple little Christian principles? Because judgment is beginning at the house of God. Because this world cannot last any longer without judgment. And God's saying, before I'm going to judge this world, I'm going to purify. There's going to be a measuring stick. Oh, I feel the power of the Holy Ghost. Let's lift our hands all over and let's worship God. Oh, God. us, O oh God. Give us a red-hot, vehement desire to serve You. Give us the want to, O oh God. Don't let us be choked out or froze out or burned out, O oh God. Ha, 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 ha.